according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, we are dealing with the Mount Olivet Discourse. And we are dealing with the final question. Jesus, uh, the disciples asked three questions. We have numbered them one, two, and three based upon the order that the disciples asked them in Matthew 24, 3. Tell us when will these things happen? That's question number one. What will the sign of your coming? That's question number two. And what will be the sign of the end of the age? That's question Number three, that's the order in which they asked them. The answers the Lord has given uh, are in a bit of a different order. Answering, uh, as we've given them to you here, question number three, first of all, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And then question number one, he answers, when will these things happen uh, with respect to the destruction of Jerusalem, the uh, destruction of the temple whereby not one stone will be left on top of another? For that, uh, we study that under point nine of your outline. Uh, the text that gives the answer for that is Luke 21, verses 20 through 24. And this brought us then to main point 10, which is the final answer Jesus gives, and it's the answer to question number two. I've got to make sure i got the right slide up here. There we go. Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, this is the final answer. Now, they have it a little bit out of order. What will be, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And that's the order they're asking it in. The, the signs actually come in a different order. The sign of the end of the age precedes the sign of his coming. Uh, the sign of the end of the age is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. Let the reader understand. That, uh, that that is the sign that the end of the age is upon them and that they are going through uh, what they're going through. Someone just came in. I couldn't see who it was. Sorry about that. Thank you, Doug. But the final question here, which is the second one they asked, what will be the sign of your coming? And this is what he gives here now in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All right? That's pretty precise. And uh, for those that are looking for that sign uh, today, it's ridiculous because it can't come until after the tribulation of those days. And uh, so you've got to understand the sequence of what's presented here and that way you're not quickly shaken from your composure, you're not disturbed, you're not, you're not uh, uh, thrown by uh, false teaching related to these things. All right, well, I'm going to open in prayer here in a moment. Let's, uh, in fact, let's go ahead and do that now. Is Dan, is everything okay back there? So we're not recording is what you're saying. Okay. All right, well, we'll just take it by faith. All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for the truth of your word, for the recording level, Father, and uh, whatever is going on there, however that got adjusted, however they got changed. 
Uh, it's in your hands, Father, and uh, we thank you and ask for your blessing on our time of study. Ask for your blessing upon to take our thoughts captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. It never ends, does it? We end up with uh, a piano we don't know how to use, and the singing on Sunday was ridiculous. So at some point, the Lord will provide us with equipment that we know how to use. All right. Question number two, what will be the sign of your coming? And this is the final answer that's given. It starts with a sun, moon, and stars that are darkened, replaced by a single sign appearing in the sky. And this does not take place until after the tribulation of those days, immediately after the tribulation of those days. The sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give us light, and the stars will fall away from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. We haven't dealt with that yet. I'll be dealing with that here this morning. The powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. So this is what we looked at under point A. The, the uh, single sign appearing in the sky, I believe it's going to be a star. It will be an angel. It will have a star appearance, as it were, similar to the star that appeared in the, at the first advent, the star that brought the wise men from uh, the east to uh, Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem and then over the house where the Lord was. That's not a normal star, as it were, that can move from town to town and then hover over the house itself. And so I imagine this sign will be something very similar to that. It will be a star in appearance, I expect, and then uh, uh, undeniably signaling the return of Christ, the undeniable indication that the Son of Man is returning with power and great glory. Secondly, and this is where we ran out of time last week, similar warnings take place at least twice in the tribulation. When you read Revelation 6, and the sun, moon, and stars are darkened, and then Revelation 8, the sun is affected once again, and Revelation 16, Revelation 19, all of these passages with reference to the sun, and it appears that the sun will be darkened on more than one occasion, and then uh, either the next morning it rises again, or very shortly thereafter, the sun uh, is restored back, the stars are restored back, and so forth. And it seems that each time mankind goes back to its own ways. Something similar to what we see today. A natural disaster takes place, uh, uh, an attack like 9-11, and, and the population gets very uh, uneasy, very religious. Churches are packed for a couple of weeks or a month. And then after the initial shock of whatever kind of passes, what, is, uh, what does humanity do? Well, we just kind of go back to what we're comfortable with and what we're used to and back to our own ways. And so uh, as you look at that, you know, you would think that Revelation 6 would, um, would really get their attention, and it does, uh, until the next time, you see. And, uh, and it is interesting because nothing in Revelation 6 says it's temporary. When he breaks the sixth seal... Uh, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Uh, the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And so this is, uh, this is unbelievable. You can imagine. And, uh, and yet, 
It's not permanent. And the, the text doesn't tell us this. It would just kind of have an indicator, and you wonder, well, gee, does this mean now for the rest of Revelation, this, everything's dark on planet Earth? How does this work? Well, then you see a couple chapters later, um, there's the sun that gets struck again. So obviously, in between chapter 6 and chapter 8, the sun came back on, things returned back to normal, and uh, humanity just kind of wiped their brow and said, whew, glad that's over, you know, and went back to their own ways. Now, thirdly, point C, I want to spend some time with this today. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. It says that in all three of the gospel accounts here. Matthew 24, 29, Mark 13, 25, Luke 21, 26. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Understand, this is an expression that's not astronomical. This is a passage that's angelic. This is a reference to fallen angels. They are the powers of the heavens. They are the heavenly host. You understand that throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. And uh, the uh, affecting of the astronomical phenomena uh, coincides with it. And that's not accidental either. So you've got the sun, you've got the moon, you've got the stars. And then, as if that's not enough, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay, understand what this is. All the energizing power of the fallen angels and demons is broken, leaving the human armies in dread. All the energizing power of the fallen angels and demons is broken, leaving the human armies in dread. And a couple of things that go with this. First of all, let's go back to Exodus 23 and then Joshua. And we've got some passages in Deuteronomy we could probably add to this as well. And but even the uh, understanding, even the, uh, the aspect of the angels, they are the heavenly host. And uh, that's not just an idiom. And it's not just with reference to the third heaven, to God's heaven, in, in the sense of the second heaven, the, the galaxies and the universe. And the, uh, it's not accidental that angels are called stars in the same terminology that the, what we call, you know, the balls of gas that we call stars um, and so forth. Exodus 23:27. We may find out when we get there that those balls of gas uh, are angels <laughs> that have been standing there and uh, posted throughout the entire period of human history. All right, Exodus 23:27. This is uh, with reference to the conquest. And uh, verse 20 says, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way to bring you into the place which I have prepared. In fact, it's going to be the captain of the Lord of hosts. It's going to be Jesus Christ himself in a pre-incarnate uh, Christophany. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. And uh, obviously, uh, he is God the Son. He is uh, coming in the name of the Father. And we understand that. But if you truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds. Now notice, there, this is a military activity. They're going to invade this land and they're going to slaughter the inhabitants of this land. But it is also a spiritual activity. The iniquity of the Amorite has been 
made complete over the process of these 400 years of their bondage in Egypt. And they are now coming under the maximum divine discipline for their demonism, for their worship of false gods and fallen angels. You shall not worship their gods nor serve them. They too are being cast down. They too are being destroyed. Nor do according to their deeds. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one who miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Notice what happens when a nation is adjusted to God's standard for an earthly nation. Then the key verse here in verse 27, I will send my terror ahead of you. I will send my terror ahead of you. And this coincides with I'm going to send an angel before you. <clears throat> this is the terror function of the captain of the Lord of hosts as he precedes Israel into battle. And what is this terror going to do? What is this terrorism ministry? We've got a lot of attention on terrorism today, right? What is the role of terrorism <coughs> as uh, Satan practices it? What is the role of terrorism as God practices it? I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. What is this dread? How are they going to be left in dread with this terror? I will send hornets ahead of you. Are these actual zoological hornets? Are these actual, um, you know, stinging insects? Possibly, or could we possibly think of this in other terms? Angelic terms. So they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. Other applications. All right, so let's keep that in mind. I will send my angel. I will send my terror. And they will throw the people into, throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. Now, take this, connect it to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua 2, verse 9 and verse 11. Joshua 2, verse 9 and verse 11. Um, here's uh, Joshua sending the spies into the land. And uh, they, uh, <laughs> we don't know why they go where they go. It's interesting. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And we don't know why. <laughs> okay. Why did they go to the whorehouse? Why did they go to um, the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there? Okay. Um, doesn't say why. It just says they did. Uh, and it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And so the king sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, and I did not know where they were from. 
And it came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark. The men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Now, this is a total lie. This is a total lie, because she actually hid them on her roof. And uh, this lie is what's cited in Hebrews 11. By faith, she hid the spies. <clears throat> but she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the, st- in the stalks of flax, which she had laid uh, in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who had, were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, now here's what's interesting. This is testimony here on her part. Now, she's a Gentile testifying to certain realities here as far as the terror of you has fallen on us. I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. So she has a testimony that lines up with what Yahweh promised Moses. So Yahweh promised uh, Moses, way back in Exodus 23, would happen as they go in to conquer the land. Now, it's been 20 years. Uh, it's no longer Moses bringing them into the land. It's Joshua bringing them into the land. But the, the instructions are still valid, and the circumstances here are being played out. The terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up water. Now, how does she know the name Yahweh anyway? Okay, this is interesting. We have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom were utterly you, uh, I'm sorry, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted. So they have a spiritual effect. The testimony had an impact within them and it was a spiritual impact. Our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. Now, if you understand that this land had previously been energized by the demons, understand that it was a haunt of demonism, and that's where their courage had been coming from, then what happens now to remove that? What happens now to melt their hearts within them? What happens now to cause that terror to affect them in the way that she is describing here? I think you understand that there is more than just simply the human realm taking place. Something similar will be occurring in the tribulation as well. Not only will Antichrist have human soldiers working for him, but there's 200 million demons that are coming out of the abyss. And you can imagine the energizing power that they would have in uh, possessing the, the troops that are coming from the east. All right. So when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For Yahweh, your God, He is El Elyon. He is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. All right. And so she's going to plead for her deliverance in her house and she's going to be spared. And I think we know the remainder of this story. So bringing it back now to Matthew 24, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What do I think that's all about? I, I, I think it's more than just simply the astronomical features that are mentioned earlier in that verse. That verse describes the sun, it describes the moon, it describes the stars. And then after that, it says the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Well, what are the principalities and the powers? What are the rulers and the authorities? Okay. And I believe the best understanding of that then is to go out of the astronomical context and place it in its spiritual context as the, uh, <coughs> the fallen angels involved in this uh, period of human history. 
Any questions on that? Does that make sense? Okay. <clears throat> now, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the Son and the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to another. The regathering. When does the regathering take place? The regathering has not taken place yet. The regathering did not take place when the exiles returned from Babylon under Zebra, Ezra, uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. The regathering did not take place in 19th century Zionism or 20th century Zionism. The regathering did not take place with the establishment of the modern state of Israel. The regathering has not yet taken place to this very day. There are Jews living in the land, of course. But the regathering from the four corners of the earth has not yet taken place. And according to this text, does not take place until the sign of the Son of Man appears in the sky and all the tribes will mourn. It does not take place until, according to the text we saw earlier in chapter 23, until Israel as a nation says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It will require the national repentance on the part of Israel. It will require the discipline upon the Gentile nations. It's going to require all of these signs. The great tribulation of those days. The sun, moon, and stars. All these things we're looking at. The abomination of desolation. There's a chain of things that have to precede the second advent of Jesus Christ. And by the way, when you finally put all that together and you spell out the whole sequence of things that have to occur in that order, it, uh, it so utterly obliterates the possibility that the second advent of Jesus Christ can be possibly the same thing as the rapture of the church. Because the rapture has none of those signs. There, there is no, expect, there is no uh, needed requirement prior to the trumpet sounding. There are no other signs we should be looking for. Huge difference between the imminency of the rapture and uh, this event, which has so many things that precede it. The idea that they would be mixed and confused is uh, stunning to me. All right. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. Verse 32. And for this, we move on to main point 11, the parable of the fig tree. Got the parable of the fig tree under point 11, and then we got the imperative to be on the alert under point 12, and that will take us down to the end of chapter 24. <clears throat> the parable of the fig tree, Matthew 24, verses 32 through 41. It's also recorded in Mark 13 in a shorter section, verses 28 through 32, only five verses there, and five verses in Luke 21, Luke 21, verses 29 through 33. The, the most lengthy of the uh, narratives comes here in Matthew 24, and so we'll stay here for... Uh, for this development. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 41. Now, learn the parable from the fig tree. Learn the parable from the fig tree. Learn is an imperative. Learn the parable from the fig tree. <laughs> you know, when you get to the end of verse 31, you just kind of want to... Right? Take a deep breath. The Lord's not done talking yet, but <clears throat> you almost want to, because 
they had these, this threefold question in verse 3. And then he's just been going and going and going and going. From verse 4 down to verse 31, he's still not done yet. But from verse 4 down to verse 31, he's been talking, well, this is going to happen. 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 And he lists a whole bunch of things that are going to happen, but that's not yet the end. And then he keeps going, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. That's not yet the end. And then this is going to happen. Now you're at the end. You're going to see the sign of the abomination. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen. And then this is going to happen, right? And he just keeps going and going and going. By the time you get to verse 31, you're thinking, okay, whew, glad that's over. Uh, Going to gather together the elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> right? can, can that please be the end of the story? What, okay? So we got a very comprehensive eschatology. And the point is not to memorize it, to, to, to know it. I mean, you're, you're kind of left at, at verse 31. You're kind of left with a so what for application. You can say, okay, now I know all this. So what? What does that mean to me? What do I do about it? What is my impact? What is, how do I respond? Okay. And if you don't get that, then what's the use in having the whole structure? If, you, if you've got the plan of God reader and you've got it memorized and you can, you can chart out Alpha to Omega, great, happy for you, but so what? How does that impact you? How does it affect your perspective? How does that shape your uh, priority system in the Christian way of life? All right. Jesus gives the so what in verse 32. He says, now learn the parable of the fig tree. It's one thing to have a developed eschatology. But learn the parable of the fig tree in relation to this developed eschatology so that you are properly oriented here and now. Learn the parable from the fig tree. It bugs me that you got uh, believers that, that get all wrapped up in prophecy and eschatology and all this other stuff. And they you know, they can... And, and they get into some deep things. And they miss the so what? What is the application today? What is it I'm supposed to learn? What is the impact for my application on a daily basis, moment by moment basis? How am I living my life? So now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Now, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Who's he talking to in that verse? Mm -hmm. He's talking to his disciples. He's calling them you. But he's also talking to you who see all these things. And if the disciples don't live long enough to see all these things, then obviously the application is going to go beyond the disciples to whoever sees all these things. That's the context. When you see all these things. So it is the, uh, it is the generation of whoever sees all these things. That is, sees the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, the sun, moon, and stars falling, the sign of the Son of Man. These are the things, the beginning of birth pangs, the not yet the end, followed by the end, and all these things. 
when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Not just near, but at hand, at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Despite every sign that should make it totally obvious, the bulk of humanity was oblivious, caught up in temporal life and completely in disregard of the preaching of Noah. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. You get to verse 42 then. It takes you into the next development, the imperative to be on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert. All right, so we'll handle that under point 12. Let's uh, get some points, though. Let's understand some things related to the parable of the fig tree. There's some confusion on this. And uh, you may have encountered it if you've ever discussed prophecy with different people. Um, they, uh, they, they zero in on this uh, one will be taken, one will be left thing, and they think this is a rapture application. All right? And it's not. We'll demonstrate that conclusively. Or they zero in on the this generation, and they... They think that that's conclusive. Oh, well, this has to apply to 70 A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem, that the generation of the people he was talking to uh, has to be this generation here. Uh, and failing to recognize that, no, he's talking about when you see these things. So uh, we've got we to handle each of these items here in turn. First of all, the fig tree, sub-point A, the fig tree is perhaps the easiest parable our Lord ever taught. The fig tree is perhaps the easiest parable our Lord ever taught. Remember, a parable is designed to make one point and one point only. A parable is not designed to be a comprehensive, uh, nitty-gritty, every last little detail has, a, has, a, has a, a parallel. People try to turn them into that, and that's garbage. It's wrong to do so. Parables teach one principle, and that's what we see here. When leaves appear on the fig tree, summer is near. That's just basic. Small children can figure that out. Go look at the tree. Are the leaves, have the leaves appeared yet? When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you're, you're, you're looking and you see, no, branches aren't tender yet. The leaves aren't coming forth yet. We're not yet approaching summer. It should be that obvious. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right near at the door. Everything we've studied from the beginning of birth pangs to the birth pangs to the abomination to the, all of these things, to the sun, moon, and stars, to the sign of the Son of Man. <laughs> that ought to be just as blunt and obvious as, are there leaves on these branches yet? Okay. I mean, if you look at a branch, can you tell if there's leaves or not? All right. <laughs> I'm not a rural guy. I'm not a farmer. I'm a city boy, but I can at least look at a branch and tell if there's leaves on it. I uh, I couldn't tell you if it's a oak tree or a sycamore. Or I wouldn't be able to tell you the kind of. I, 
I memorized 21 different plants and trees and things, got my Eagle Scout, and then promptly forgot it all. I don't care anymore. You know. Sharon knows the trees in our backyard, the ones that are pecans and the ones that are oaks and the ones that are whatever. I don't even know. They're trees. God put them there. Not my concern. All right. So, uh, but even somebody as non-agricultural as myself can look at a branch and see whether it has leaves or not. It should be that obvious. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. For the pivotal events in human history, I'm thinking first advent, second advent, how obvious does he make these things? How obvious does he make it in in the sense that it's going to be a virgin of the tribe of Judah, the family of David in Bethlehem, right? And then the star that brings the Magi right over the very house itself and angels that go out to the fields by night and bring the shepherds in. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Here's the baptizer bringing people up out of the water and he's baptizing. Who knows? Days, weeks, months, whatever. He's baptizing, he's baptizing, he's baptizing. When he baptizes Jesus and Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are open, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, lands on Jesus, the booming voice out of heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Can you get any more obvious than that? (laughs) Right? And so I'm thinking second advent, same, same circumstance here. I mean, if you can't follow this chain that's being presented, then you're just not, you're not reading. You're not paying attention. And that's the thing. And uh, there are those that aren't going to be reading, aren't going to be paying attention. They're, they're married, they're given a marriage, they're, they're consumed by social life, consumed by their bios life we were discussing. Uh, they're just all wrapped up in secular life and they don't have even a, a second thought, a moment's thought for anything related to the Bible or God's Word or anything related to uh, the plan of God or anything. Totally consumed by secular life. All right. Point B. The sign of the end, which, remember, is the abomination in the temple. The great tribulation of Israel and the sign of the Son of Man will make the imminence of Jesus' second coming undeniable. It will make the imminence of Jesus' second coming undeniable. Could it be today? Could his second advent be today? No. Couldn't be today. His sign has not yet appeared in the the heavens. The sun, moon, and stars have not yet been cast down. The uh, great tribulation of Israel has not been unleashed upon this earth. The abomination of desolations has not stood in the temple. We actually don't even have a temple yet constructed on the on the mountain in Jerusalem. Um, we've not yet reached the end. We've seen some things that are consistent with the beginning of birth pangs. And so that's as close as we can be at this moment, today, on this fine August morning in 2011, in the year of our Lord, all right, A.D. Second Advent cannot come today, cannot come tomorrow. Rapture could come today. And then the remainder of the events can unfold in, a, in I believe, a very rapid fashion. Um, 
but I don't think tomorrow could be the day that the, the seven-year covenant would be signed with, with Antichrist. There's going to be some kind of transition time. There's going to be some kind of uh, transition in which Antichrist is produced and lifted up and, and magnified and placed into his position. Other things, I think, uh, Ezekiel 38 has to precede the Daniel 9 covenant. I think uh, Psalm 93 has to, or Psalm 83 has to precede the Daniel 9 covenant. Other things. Second Advent can't be tomorrow. And we know that because we've got a long chain of things to be looking for. Rapture could be today, though. There's nothing we could look for that precedes the rapture. Does that make sense? We understand that. All right. So the sign of the end which is the abomination in the temple, the great tribulation of Israel and the sign of the Son of Man, they will make the imminence of Jesus' second coming undeniable. His sign is there. He is near. He is at the door. When is He going to come through the door? Imminence. Okay? Could be today. Could be tomorrow. At any point in time as that sign appears. When, when, is, when is He coming in? He's at the door. He is at the door and can open that door at any moment. And we do know that the second half of the tribulation is 42 months. It's three and a half years. It's 1,260 days. And so you say, well, doesn't that destroy imminency? If we got the date of the covenant and then we can count the, the 42 months until he betrayed it, and then we can count the 42 months after he betrays it, doesn't that destroy imminency? Don't we have to go to the end of that? No, because we're also told that those days were cut short. For the sake of the elect, those days are cut short. Hmm, okay, now we're back to imminency again. <laughs> How short? Yeah. Did he chop five days off? Did he chop ten days off? Twenty days? hundred days? We don't know. But the sun, moon, and stars have fallen. The sign has appeared in heaven. Maybe today. Maybe today. Okay? And so we have the, uh, the parable here to learn from. Thirdly, so until all those signs unfold, should Israel be in the imminent expectation of their Christ? Not at all. Uh -uh. And you understand, <laughs> Israel today in unbelief has got some huge problems, okay? Because Israel today, Jewish people today in unbelief, they're still waiting for their first advent, <laughs> okay? So imagine how confused they are. Are they still looking for a virgin in a manger in Bethlehem? Oh, no, that's too close to the Christian story. So what do they... But see, the problem is, that's still their Bible. <laughs> and they even had to realize, very, you know, the, the rabbis, by the time you got to the Talmud, you got the Mishnah and you got the Talmud and you got the, the rabbis from the early Christian centuries, even they admitted that the Daniel calendar is over. They admitted that 69 sevens, no matter how you calculate it, the 69 sevens is done, the 70 sevens is done. They, they, uh, they had a hard time with Daniel in the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries. I'm talking about the Jewish rabbis. All right. Long about the time frame, I believe, where they removed Daniel from their prophets and pushed him over in, into the writings portion of their Tanakh. <laughs> okay. Because they knew the 69 sevens were done and they w did not want to admit that it had anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. All right. And so 
Daniel could no longer be considered a prophet and had to be moved over to the writings and where it is to this day. Interestingly enough. Now, um, thirdly, point C. Clearly, this generation in chapter 24 is not the same as this generation of chapter 23. The first century generation and the tribulation generation must be kept distinct. And this is where dispensationalists have a fundamental hermeneutical disagreement with the preterists. And it's, uh, it's driven by their hermeneutic. It's driven by, and I, uh, I, I don't impugn their motivations. Others do. Um, I think there's a school that will alter their hermeneutic to fit their theology. And then there's a school that alters their theology because of their hermeneutic. And um, uh, in my perspective, the dispensational school does the best maintaining a consistent hermeneutic and not bending and changing because it doesn't match their theology. The other side has to answer to the Lord for the integrity of their motivation. But again, I would point out to you, who is he speaking to when he says, you too, when you see all these things... The people who see all these things, whoever they may be, the literal people listening to them or believers 2,000 years later that see all these things. You too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is right near, near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, you who see all these things and recognize that he is near, right at the door, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Now, we had a, a, this generation in chapter 23, uh, you might recall, and I even highlighted it at the time. Um, he talks about... I'm not finding it. Anybody spot it in chapter 23? 36, thank you. Oh, yeah, there you go. True, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Well, now, who is he talking to? Um, when he talks about your houses being left to you desolate, you serpents, you brood of vipers, you Pharisees, you hypocrites. He has all these woes upon the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And uh, you adorn the, uh, you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. You say, if we'd been living in the days of our fathers, we would not be, have been partners with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. He, everything he's rebuking here is rebuking the, the opponents of his generation, the opponents of his day. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you. Who's he talking to still? This audience that he's listening to. Not... Not a people that will see things someday, but the people that he's confronting right here, right now. The people that are going to assume the guilt of all the blood of all the martyrs shed from A to Z. From Abel to Zechariah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And as we studied this back in the message of the time, you recall that 
This is the generation that said that demands the crucifixion of the Christ and said his blood be upon our head and on our children. And uh, this is going to happen. This is uh, the consequences, their national destruction and the consequences of what's going to happen here upon this generation. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now, see, the problem is, is that that the preterists take this generation that shows up in Matthew twenty three thirty six, and they take this generation that shows up in Matthew uh, twenty four uh, thirty four. And they said, well, it's got to be the same thing. He's got to be talking about the same thing. When obviously he's not given the whole chain of things that he's described in the beginning of birth pangs, the birth pangs, the abomination, the, the sun, moon, and stars, the sign, of the, sun and the, uh, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. When you see all these things, entirely different scope. And uh, for those that identify with that, they keep them separate and they have no problems. For those that fail to see any difference, then, uh, then they've got big problems. Because then they say, well, it was all fulfilled in the first century. It was all over when, when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And they've got a huge problem there. All right. It is interesting, too, um, for the folks who try to defend the preterist understanding, uh, then <laughs> how come they don't have the rest of it? How come the, the elect weren't gathered from the four corners of the earth? How come universal righteousness wasn't then uh, brought in? How come the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ reigning on the throne of Jerusalem? How come that didn't happen? See, well, because now we've got to immediately start spiritualizing everything. Oh, the kingdom came, but it came in the church. Oh, Christ is reigning, but he's reigning in heaven. Oh, you know, and so they immediately go into a maximum allegory universe. Because there's no way to literally say that Jesus Christ descended on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him and, and threw Satan into the abyss for a thousand years. All right? How did that, when did that happen? When, did, uh, when was Jerusalem exalted? When was that temple Ezekiel spoke about? When was that built? Okay. It's, uh, it, it is... It is I think it is it is a it's a delusion, and it's, it's sad that so many churches are caught up in a whole branch of, of uh, theology is caught up in that. But it is what it is. Now, if you can keep your this generation's separate in context, then you're you're going to do fine. Rightly dividing the word of truth, and uh, and there we have it. But imagine how powerful this is going to be. For the 144,000. Imagine how powerful this is going to be when Israel finally has their stewardship restored. They have not been stewards for 2,000 years. But when the church is gone and stewardship is restored back to Israel, and they once again have an opportunity to start growing in the Word of God, they've got a whole New Testament now <laughs> that Israel never had before, right? And so now they've got their Hebrew prophets. Now they've got the words of Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Now they got the words of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. Now they got uh, Apostle Paul and his eschatology with the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now they got a whole New Testament to add to their Old Testament to have a whole council approach to what to expect. This is going to become powerful to them. And they're going to understand, wow, we're the generation that's seeing all these things. We're the generation that's spoken of. Not the Matthew 23 this generation, the Matthew 24 this generation. We better pay attention. 
We need to endure to the end. We need to stay alive until the one who's standing at the door opens that door and enters in. Okay. Much more on that, but I think uh, I think we'll let that go at this point. Let's talk about Noah's flood. Or let's mention this. Uh, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Understand this. Jesus spoke this, and, and you emailed me with this question. Uh, Jesus spoke this during the time of his incarnation, meaning during the time of his kenosis, the time of his uh, humility, whereby he laid aside his privileges. He, he emptied himself, we're told in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus humbled himself, coming in the appearance of a man, being made in the likeness of man. And he limited his knowledge, he limited his understanding to those things which he accumulated and learned humanly. That he did not tap into his omniscience. He did not access his uh, uh, sovereign omniscience of the Father's eternal plan. Now, he couldn't stop being omniscient any more than he could stop being omnipresent. But in the humility of his first advent incarnation, he chose to not exercise privileges and and, and powers and rights and, and, and attributes that he otherwise could. See, he never once exercised omnipotence. Never once ident- uh, exercised omnipresence. He limited himself to the, to the monopresent body that the Father prepared for him in the womb of the Virgin. Which meant for nine months he was monopresent in utero. Did I say that right? In the womb. Okay? And then he was birthed. And then he, he limited himself to the monopresent location of wherever they carried him as an infant. And then he learned how to walk. And then he learned how to speak. And then he learned how to, he learned his Bible. And he learned all these things. And so he's limited. In his humanity, he never knew the day or the hour. Not even the angels in heaven. It's not revealed in Scripture. The day and the hour is not spelled out. We know about the 69 weeks. We know about the 70th week. We, we know there's a gap in between, but we don't know how long that gap is. No one knows. It's not revealed in Scripture, either human Scripture or angelic Scripture. Only, and only the Father knows in the sense that of what the Lord is saying here. And so, a question that came by email, this was one of Lillian's questions. Um, given that, you know, Jesus has been in heaven for a while now, uh, uh, and on this fine Wednesday morning in 2011 AD, does Jesus know now? Does he know the day and the hour now? Today, does he know? And... Uh, you know, scripture doesn't say when he found out or does he wait to find out until the father says, OK, today is the day. Um, I believe that the time of his humiliation was the time of his first advent. And then when he ascended, when the father handed him the scroll, when he was seated at the father's right hand, that there was no longer any required uh, limitation to his knowledge. That at that point, then he was permitted to access his omniscience, permitted to access his omnipresence and all of his divine privileges were restored. He says, restore to me the glory which I had with you before the world was. And I believe that took place the moment he arrived in victory at his uh, at his ascension into heaven. So, yes, sir. The, the elect angels in heaven are probably still kept in the dark. I believe that's true. That's right. All right. Until such time as then the command is given. And then the trumpet sounds. The voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. And then they know. Right? All right. Now. The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. The days of Noah are huge. We've got to understand this. The days of Noah. 
Noah's flood is a vital hermeneutic. Point D. Noah's flood is a vital hermeneutic for the second advent of Jesus Christ. And the emphasis here on the marrying and the eating and the drinking, that's one way to look at it. It's the way the Scripture presents it here. But there's another fundamental difference, and you've got you to lock in on it. And that's this whole taking and leaving. Do you ever think of the flood as a taking and leaving? This passage describes the flood as a taking and leaving. And who was taken in the flood? All the unbelievers. That's right. Everybody but Noah's family. Who was left? Believers. Noah's family. Eight souls survived the flood. The flood was a taking and leaving event. Just like the rapture will be a taking and leaving event. Like the second advent will be a taking and leaving event. Now we're never told that the rapture is like the days of Noah. But we are told that the second advent of Jesus Christ is like the days of Noah. And as a taking and leaving event, we want to understand who was taken and who was left. Well, at the flood, the unbelievers were all taken. Taken in physical death and removed. Who was left? Believers. Preserved from the wrath and, and uh, left to populate a new world. Second Advent is going to be identical to that. Unbelievers are going to be taken in judgment, physically slain and removed. And the only ones left are going to be the believers, preserved from wrath and left to repopulate a new world, the millennial earth. Noah's flood is a vital hermeneutic for the Second Advent of Jesus Christ. The flood took away the unbelievers. The taking and leaving, and so totally took away too. Imagine that there were cities before the flood. Do, is there any archaeological evidence of them that remains after the flood? You understand how destructive, how totally obliterating the flood was globally upon this earth? Hmm. Of course, secular archaeology is lost because they see compression and they see fossilization and they see all these things in layers and they think that oh that must mean billions and billions of years somebody with a biblical viewpoint sees compression and layers uh, of, of water and sedimentation and so forth and they say worldwide flood <laughs> not billions and billions of years but billions and billions of pounds of water compressing the the surface of the earth different things there all right the taking and leaving must be interpreted in the light of this imagery and not confused with the rapture of the church. So when it says one will be taken, two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left, that's not a picture of, well, the believer got raptured and the unbeliever is left to, uh, to face tribulation. No. Tribulation is actually over by now. Okay, It's after the tribulation of those days this takes place. It's the unbeliever who's taken physically slain, sent to hell. And the one that's left is the believer who will enter into the joy of your master. Two women grinding in the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. 
It's the unbeliever that's taken. Physically slain, cast into hell. One will be left. Enter into the joy of your master. And this generation that crosses from tribulation into millennial reign becomes the uh, generation that will produce the first generation of millennial inhabitants. All right. Only believers enter the millennium. You understand that? No unbeliever enters the millennium. But then these babies start getting born. And not all of them get saved. By the end of the thousand years, there are so many unbelievers on the world in rebellion against Jesus Christ, they demand the release of Satan from the abyss and they stage a coup in a uh, human rights protest against Jesus' throne in Jerusalem. Interesting to think about. All right. We'll pick up on this next week and then we'll handle the imperative to be on the alert. Verses 42 through 51. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for the parable of the fig tree. Thank you for its obviousity and uh, the blessings of what it will be for this generation when they see these things take place. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.